You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Hey, I want to make a quick announcement before we dive into the sermon. This past week, we released uh, a brand new podcast. On Mondays, we are going to release a podcast every single Monday called Unpack That. Uh, The purpose of this podcast is to address maybe some things that we didn't have enough time to address here in the pulpit, or maybe you were reading and you saw something that just didn't make sense. For example, last week we're preaching through a passage where Jesus sends the 72 off to proclaim the kingdom of God. Well, some of your translations said he sent 70, and I had a couple people walk up to me and goes, hold on, is it 70 or 72? And so what we did in about 10 or 15 minutes is we unpacked the answer to that question, and several others. So if at the end of a sermon you leave having questions or wanting more application or wanting some deeper dive into some things, you can uh, send us an email at connect at piedmontchurch.net. We'll look at those, and if your question is worthy, just kidding, uh, we will uh, then talk about it for 10 to 15 minutes on Monday morning. So, uh, excuse me, Monday, not Monday morning. It will not be Monday morning. It will be Monday before 11.59 p.m., so maybe Tuesday for you. But, uh, yeah, you can find those on Spotify, Apple, Apple Podcasts, and our website as well. So let's dive in to the sermon. So today, we are going to dive into a scripture that tells us a really good story. And we all like good stories. We, around the globe, people love good stories. Raise your hand, and this has nothing to do with my initial announcement, but raise your hand if you listen to podcasts. Raise your hand. Okay, quite a few of us. The top three podcasts of 2023 are this. Number one, a podcast called Crime Junkie. Number two, The Retrievals. And number three, The Joe Rogan Experience. All of these podcasts are popular because of the way they tell stories. Now, you could second guess and question Joe Rogan's popularity because uh, in some ways what he discusses and his popularity becomes because he talks about insane things that have like this shred of reality and a little bit of mescaline inside of them as well. But that is Joe Rogan. We love podcasts. We love stories. We all love a good stories and a good story. And I think oftentimes when we think of a good story, what we end up doing is we put ourselves in the middle of that story. Do you ever imagine that you are the hero of said story? You're right in the middle of a story. I want to play a game this morning through. Uh, the wonderful thing of AI, we have taken a few people's faces in our congregation and put them on some heroes or some people in a story, and we're going to put the, those people up behind us here in just a moment, and I want you, if you can guess who you think they are, to shout them out loud. Everybody ready? Here we go. Person number one. Anybody got it? Hunter! Yes! That is Hunter. Hunter! Person number two. Man, that was quick. That was super quick. None of, none of our staff got that one right. Ari. Number three. Okay, we're seeing a trend. We are seeing a trend for sure. I didn't know how you would take it, so we made sure we put the, the people in there that could take it. Kaylee. Yes. Kaylee. 
Y'all say a prayer for her. She's sick today. So the unfortunate part about this is my wife's going to look at this and be like, Chris, you need to lose a pound or two. You look pretty good skinny, you know? And to me, the, the most real-looking photo of them all, Tylen as Superman. Yes. Sometimes we put ourselves right in the middle of stories. We all do this in some way, shape, or form. Maybe it's not through AI and looking at yourself in a picture, or maybe it is while you're at your desk at work. But today we're going to look at a story that all of us know, that most of us in this room have heard at some point in time. It's probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible. People all around the world know this story, especially people in our country. It is so popular that it even has a law named after it, the Good Samaritan Law. Have you heard of this? It's, it's a law where the person who is going to save someone cannot be held liable for injury if they are doing a Good Samaritan act. And as we read this well-known story, what we are tempted to do oftentimes is to put ourselves in the middle of it and ask a simple question. Am I a Good Samaritan? Or are you being a Good Samaritan? And the truth is, this passage doesn't really deal with that question. It wasn't written to point you to that place. Rather, what it is written to do, it leads us to a different place. It leads us to see that we aren't good Samaritans. And if you're taking notes with me this morning, whether that's on your bulletin or in your Bible, I would strongly encourage you to have your Bible out with us. The title of today's sermon is to put Jesus at the center of the story. Put Jesus at the center of the story. So we're in the series asking the question, so you're a Christian, you're saved, what's next? What's next is you need to learn how to put Jesus at the center of the story. So let's just walk through this passage line by line. Verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. So right there at the very beginning of this, the, the thesis statement, the subject line is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Don't lose that. That's the question that starts all of this. In, in a moment, Jesus is going to tell a story, and that story is to help answer this question of what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now I want to unpack a few things in that verse right there. It says, a lawyer stood up. I don't want you to see a guy who went to Harvard and passed his bar exam, because that is not what this word means in the original language. This lawyer is more like a priest, rabbi, kind of understanding this, this picture of someone who went through rabbinical training and knows the Mosaic law forward and back. They would have gone to seminary to become some sort of highly educated whiz in the Torah. They would have known the Old Testament very well. So this well-read, highly intelligent person comes to Jesus asking him a question about how does he inherit eternal life. And Luke gives us a clue. It says to put him to the test. We don't have to guess. I wonder why he's asking Jesus. Luke tells us why. This word here means more than just to test Jesus. It actually means to tempt Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 26. 
Jesus' reply. He says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus flips back the question on this well-read man. Hey, if you've gone to school and you know all the things, lawyer, how about you answer the question? In so many ways, what Jesus is doing is what we now call the Socratical method. It's answering a question with another question in hopes that the original person asking a question will think and come to a place of understanding on their own. Verse 27, the lawyer replies, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer does a really good job. What he does is he takes a portion of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, and he puts them together. And what he shows is exactly what the Scripture teaches, that all of the law rests on two things. As a matter of fact, Jesus says as much in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Someone coming to Jesus. And he responds to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all, all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then listen to what Jesus says at the end. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. See, the, the Ten Commandments can be summed up in really two things. To love God and to love people. The first four align with loving God and the last six align with loving people. So you could say in some way, shape, or form that the first four are our vertical love. The last six are our horizontal love. How do we love God? How do we then love people? And from loving God, we find a place and understanding of how we love people. And this is how the lawyer responds to Jesus. A pretty good answer. So how does Jesus then respond to him? Verse 28. You have answered correctly. And here's the catch. Do this and you will live. It's almost as if the conversation in this moment is over. Okay? Hey, how do I get an eternal life? Well, I don't know. What do you think? What's the, what's the Bible say? Well, the Bible says this. Man, great answer. Go do it. I can almost see Jesus like at a party. This guy walks up to him, and Jesus is standing there. Taps him on the, he gets tapped on the shoulder. The, the, the conversation begins, and then Jesus looks at him and goes, yeah, man, absolutely. Do that, and, and you'll get it. And he kind of turns his back. That's, that's a little bit of how I imagine this happening. But there's something more to Jesus' reply, isn't there? Because the conversation continues. There, there's, there's something itching at, at, at the tip of this guy's tongue and his heart of understanding of, okay, what does this mean? And in some ways, I think what he's asking is he's asking himself in kind of an inner monologue moment of like, okay, what does it mean to love God and to love people? What does it mean? What does it mean to, to love God and love people as God loves? So John 13 talks about how Christians will be known. What does it say? It says Christians, the, the followers of Jesus, will be known by how they love. And then he says something similar that gives us a little more backbone of this understanding. In, in, his, in his epistle, 1 John, in chapter 4, it says that we love because God first 
loved us. So when we start talking about this understanding and this idea of loving God and loving people, it all begins with a right understanding that we, as humans, specifically Christians, we know love because God loved us first. And once we've received and we know that love, then and only then will we be, will we be able to love others. So when we say we love someone, is that love perfect? When you say you love God, is it a perfect, a whole kind of love? This is a lot of what Jesus is trying to get this lawyer, this man who would have known the law front and back to see, to start asking, is my love without blemish? Because if God's love is the standard, am I reaching that standard? Are you reaching that standard? And that's really what is at the middle of this discussion when he gets to the point of, oh yeah, just love God and love people. Do it wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, as a whole place. Love God with your whole heart. Love, God, love people with your whole heart. And I think the lawyer understands a little bit of the tension, but we'll see his motives in this next action. In verse 29, Luke gives us another clue. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So we understand that the lawyer isn't seeing it from a right heart or a correct perspective. The lawyer is just trying to still test Jesus and still trying to push the limits because he doesn't completely understand everything. And he is looking for a definition of who his neighbor is rather than inspecting his heart and love. Now, this is important to know. I want to give you a little bit of backstory. So, Jewish lawyer. Why is he wondering who his neighbor is? Shouldn't he know the answer? Well, yes and no. So the scriptures certainly gave him the answer. But as you and I both know, if we kind of pick and choose the scriptures that we like and lead by, we may get a skewed version of the truth. And so at this point in time, what the Jews really held dear was that God had called them to love their people and not really other people. They based a lot of this off of Psalm 133, beginning in verse 21. It says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. They really held tight to this. Now, if you remember from last week, we talked about all the different ways to understand Scripture and how we should kind of use a good exegesis, a good hermeneutical study, meaning we walk through the Bible verse by verse, understanding its whole context, understanding context of books. There's also different types of books. And so what the Jews had missed was that this moment, this psalmist, was really just lamenting back to God. He wasn't laying a a theological foundational truth that, hey, you know what? If you don't like God, I hate you, right? That wasn't really the truth. It was really just a moment where the psalmist is going, I'm struggling to love the people that are rejecting you. And so I'm, I'm kind of 
coming to you with the weight of all of this on my heart. Well, how do you know that, Chris? Well, let's go to other places in Scripture, and let's see what the whole of Scripture would point us to. Passages like Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 10 that proclaim, hey, you should love the sojourner, because you were once sojourners in the land of Egypt. Jesus, early in his ministry, Matthew 5, addresses this head on. He addresses this tension that the Jews have. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and do what? Hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The lawyer was looking to trap Jesus. He was looking for a way out. Instead of seeing what Jesus was truly saying. And what Jesus was truly saying is that you can't love the way the law has called you to love. You can't love the way the law has called you to love. What do you mean by that? So in scripture, the law is laid out, and we'll go over this in just a moment as a method, as a way to point us back to God's perfect and holy plan and himself in whole. So when we see the Ten Commandments in other places that, hey, you're to do these things, this, these checklist things, in many ways, why he laid that out was to answer the question of, could I do this? And the answer is no. You can't do this. But God didn't leave you answerless. He didn't leave you solutionless. He steps into the problem and says, I will be the answer. What you need to do is trust me. And that is where Jesus begins to tell him this story. Remember, the question is, originally, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you love God, you love people. Cool, but you can't do that wholly. So here's Jesus giving a story to this man. Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho in verse 30. And it says, he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now I want you to know what's happening in this picture, this road that he's on is actually known at that time as a way of blood. This, this path is about a 17-mile-long path. It's the same road that the psalmist references in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Same path. It was well known that you don't walk on this road. It, it has a 3,000-foot descent. It is, and because of that, there are multiple places for robbers and other people who mean to do you harm to hide. So you don't walk on this road at night, and you don't walk on this road by yourself. But yet this man, likely a Jew, traveling to Jericho and back to Jerusalem at some point, is on this road by himself, and he gets jumped. And he gets all of his stuff stolen, and then he's left for dead. It says, now by, a cha by chance, a priest was going down that road. So in, in the story, Jesus offers a holy man. Yeah, I don't know if you all know this, but a priest is someone who was specifically chosen from a specific crowd and then who went through specific training to become a priest. Like they are in some ways a very holy man. 
Like they have gone through all the things. And so the expectation is that this priest, the cut above, would make the right decision. But he doesn't. What does he do? He walks on the other side of the road, avoiding this. Now, some people will go through this whole thing. Well, he was on his way to a ceremony, so he didn't want to be ceremonially unclean. I love how John MacArthur puts it. He goes, yeah, but this is like a story, so let's not use logic in why he did it, right? It's just a parable. The purpose of this is for Jesus to show the holy man avoided the broken man, okay? Then what does he do? He goes down and he lists the next person to avoid the guy who's broken and naked on the side of the road. It's a Levite from one of the tribes of Judah. This is still a holy person. They were a people chosen to be set apart, to be priests, to, be, uh, to lead in rabbinical trainings, to, to, to lead over ceremonies in the places of the temple. These are still kind of seminary trained people. And what we're seeing from both the priest and the Levite is they didn't go to seminary, they went to cemetery. Their religion died, their faith was gone, right? They didn't want to help anybody. They just wanted to make their money, and move on. This is the Levite. This is the priest. The people who should do the right thing don't. And then comes a Samaritan. Now, if you've been raised in church, you know that there's a tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. They didn't get along. And I think that might be like a mild understatement. So, just to let you know a little more backstory of the Samaritans. So there were several times where the Jews were taken captive by people, by the Bab- Babylonian Empire and by the Assyrian Empire. About 700 B.C., the Assyrians take over the Jews. They then release some Jews to go home, back to Jerusalem. When they do so, they allow some Assyrians to go back with the Jews. And what happens from that point is some Assyrians and some Jews get married and do what married people do. They make babies, right? And then come Assyrian slash Jewish babies. And what those people were known as were Samaritans. But in many ways, the way they were looked upon and viewed in life were half-breeds. Really less than people. They had a mis understanding of the full will of God because God told the Jews not to intermingle. God told the Jews to be set apart in these ways. And it wasn't necessarily because he had something against other people. It was more so to keep his people holy and to show them there is a special calling to be a son and daughter of the living God. And they broke it. And because they broke it, there was a cultural break in as well. So the Samaritan people were then looked down upon. And to be called a Samaritan was almost like a cuss word. John 8, there's a, a, re, a, re, a retelling of a moment where Jesus is not only called a Samaritan, but he's called a Samaritan who has a demon. Dim's fighting words. Like that right there is bad news. And it's almost the worst thing that you can say to a Jew. And so when Jesus then retells this story to the lawyer and to us through the account of Luke, what he is showing us is the first two people were the people who should do the right thing. And the third person in your minds is trash. And look what they do. What do they do? 
They get oil and wine and they pour it on the broken man. Wine using, uh, used as an antiseptic, oil used to help with pain. He then picks this man up. He could have stopped right there. Here's a Band-Aid. Here's some food. Let's move on. Note, what does he do? He picks him up, puts him on his beast of burden is really how the scripture, we don't know if it's a horse, a camel, a donkey. And then he takes him to a close inn. Now, this isn't, again, I feel like every time we go to inn, we go back to, you know, Jesus' birth. And this inn is not a normal inn. It ain't Motel 6. There's something unique about this inn. It's not a typical place you would take someone, but it's the closest thing by that will do. He walks up to the innkeeper and gets a place for him. And it says he gives him what? How many denarii? Two. Archaeologists recently found a Roman sign that would have been placed over an inn just like this. This sign revealed that one night's stay at a place like this was one thirty-second of a denarii. So what this guy leaves is essentially two months rent for this dude to stay. Samaritan's a good guy. He's going above and beyond. But it doesn't stop there. What happens? He then looks at the innkeeper. And this is, hey, let me know what else needs to happen. And I'll cover it. That's generosity. I mean, think about that. You pick up somebody who's been hurt broken, beaten. You take him to a local place to stay, and then you say, hey, tabs on me, bro. It's mini bar all night. You know what I'm saying? Them snicker bars that cost you $7.50, they're getting eaten. Them little Sutter Home wine bottles, they're getting drank. Like, it's happening. And that is what is happening in this picture. And you know what the Samaritan says? Don't worry about it. I got it. That's generosity. That's a picture of massive generosity that most everyone, if not every single person in this room, would go, I don't have that kind of generosity. Even on my best financial days, I don't know if I would stop for a guy who's broken, beaten. Is, would he hurt me? I, I'm busy. I got all this going on. And then I bandage his wounds and, and, and tend to him. Oh, and then let me put him in my car so he can get blood all over the backseat of my car, right? Let me drive him to a place nearby, pay for two months for him to stay there, and then look at the dude who's in charge, the manager, go, hey, by the way, anything else he needs, just, just put it on my tab. How many of y'all done that lately? Don't raise your hands, right? This is a crazy amount of generosity. And Jesus then looks at the man, the lawyer, in verse 36, and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He can't even say who. The lawyer doesn't say the Samaritan, does he? The one who showed him mercy. And in so many ways, I can see Jesus' body language, maybe a sigh of disappointment and hurt. And he just goes, yeah, you go and do likewise. Because through, through this story, that the lawyer would have picked up all the nuance of the culture. He still doesn't get it. He's still in this place, holding contempt against the Samaritan. So what's the point? Well, many have read this 
sermon. Many have read this story, and they've heard it taught in a way and in a statement that says, hey, just be like the Good Samaritan. You need to be more like the Good Samaritan. Our nation accepts that teaching. People around the world accept that teaching. Laws have been made through that type of understanding. Hey, man, do you see that, that type of generosity? Go and do that. I can imagine elementary schools around the world having some sort of thing that says Good Samaritan rules, right? Go and be these kind of people. Be the Good Samaritan who helps those in need. And it, it's a good thing to be like the Good Samaritan. But we're missing it. And we can be clued in that we're missing it in some ways. Why? Because if the world accepts that as what this scripture teaches, we can first and foremost be assured that is probably not what God wants the world or what everyone to know. If your theology aligns with people who don't even have a theology about Jesus, there's something missing. Right? It can't be, be like the good Samaritan. Why not? Why can't it be like that? Well, just before this interaction with the lawyer, if you remember a couple weeks ago, Jesus tells his disciples something important. Verse 23, he looks at them and says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Said a different way in Matthew 11, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. See, people of faith, Christians, you in the room, disciples of Christ, we don't hear things, see things. Our faith sets our vision and our hearing in a different way than the worlds around us. People of faith don't see things the way the world sees things. Scripture says the gospel is the whole truth. It is everything that we need. But people in the world see the scripture as what? Worthless. They see the gospel as folly. Foolishness to those who have nothing. If you leave this story thinking that it's about you becoming a better person and becoming more like the Samaritan, then all you have done is you have read yourself into the story. Just how we started this sermon. But what Christians need to do, what you and I need to do, is to recognize that we have abandoned everything in following Jesus, and we read him into the story. The whole of the Bible is the authored word of God coming alive as the word incarnate to display the glorious grace of God on mankind. The whole of the Bible is the authored word of God coming alive as the word incarnate, Jesus, to display the glorious grace of God on mankind. The purpose of this story is to reveal to us the Samaritan is Jesus. He is God. Jesus is the good Samaritan. The holy priest couldn't do it. 
The holy Levite couldn't do it. Here's this broken, beaten, cast out person, the Samaritan, who's been called all sorts of names. He's been ignored. People walk on the other side of the road to avoid Jesus. He's reviled against by his own people. And yet, he's come to save them, to bandage their wounds, to put them on the beast of burden, to take them to a place that will show them care, and to show them endless generosity. Jesus redefines love. No borders, no biases, just boundless mercy. What Jesus is doing to this lawyer is he's evangelizing him. He's trying to point him to the picture of the gospel. He's telling this self-righteous man, the man who thinks he's done all the right works to get the right things done, that he isn't righteous. Don't miss that. Here's a guy who thinks he knows the law. I've been keeping, I've been doing all the right things, God. And Jesus looks back at him and says, maybe you've been trying, but you're missing it. You're missing it. Jesus doesn't miss it. The Messiah doesn't miss it. The first step in us receiving the gospel is exactly what Jesus is trying to get this lawyer to see. That if we can't recognize that we are broken and lost and naked on the side of the road and in need of a good Samaritan, we can't recognize the good Samaritan's attributes. I can tell you how good God is. But if you can't see your brokenness, if you can't see that you're in need, then his goodness isn't needed. The lawyer should have seen it. We should see it. Romans 3.20 reveals how the law points us to a place of acknowledgement of, of a greater power. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So we keep the law, we can't be justified. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you, in closing, a couple of steps to help you see this passage come to fruition. And in my podcast, we'll, we'll talk about some application and all those things tomorrow. Step one, what we need to do in order to see the full gospel is we need to recognize our need for a savior. Like this is something you live in and walk in as a Christ follower, right? It's not something you did once at a camp or at VBS or on a Sunday morning or walking down an aisle. This is something we walk in. So what's next, Christian? We need to recognize our need for a savior. Step two, we need to see Jesus for who or what he is. He is the Messiah. Step three, we begin following Jesus. And this is where we put Jesus at the center of the story. So when you follow Jesus, you're no longer the author of your story. He is. You put him at the center of the pond like a rock and let it ripple out. And you find meaning from his rock in the middle. And the ripples of your life are derived from him. Not from your desires, not from what you see fit, but from Jesus. 
And as we begin to follow him, we put him at the center. Step four is this. We become more like Jesus. See, there's a, a partial truth that you can receive in that Good Samaritan teaching. Oh, just be more like the Good Samaritan. It's true. You can't do it, though. The Spirit of God does it through you. What you can do is humble yourself. Ask God to reveal a picture of your brokenness, of the sin in your life, to see that you are the man on the side of the road, the woman on the side of the road, beaten, broken, in need of help. And that you see him for who he is. The good Samaritan coming to give you boundless grace. Romans 6 says that as we walk in the Spirit and we trust God the Father through our faith in Him, we will become more and more like Jesus. His good Samaritan qualities begin to shape our lives. So two questions. Question number one, will you put Jesus at the center of your life today? Will you find meaning from his existence and his hope and his purpose in you? And question number two, attached to that, will you allow him to mold you every single day into becoming more and more like Jesus? Let's pray. God, I ask that as we read a text this morning that reveals to us that we can't be good enough. The desire to, to be the people who always help somebody on the side of the road is it, not a bad desire. It, it's kind of like the idea of going from good to great. It's a good thing to help people in need, but what's a great thing is to realize that we can't do it on our own. We need you. Our flesh will always get in the way of boundless grace, but you don't hold it back. You have given us your entire self you gave us your whole heart as we sang earlier. So God, help us to repent and believe and walk in the fullness that we don't have to do it, that you've already done it, and we walk in the truth and the light of the glory of God, that you are good. You are the Samaritan that goes above and beyond. And we submit to that truth and own that we aren't but we want to become more and more like you by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside us. Tear us down, break all of our walls, and help us to become more like you. And God's people said, come on, let's stand up and sing.